You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And we are super fortunate to be able to pick Dr. Love's Brain yet again. This is week two of our coverage of Lyme disease. And in all seriousness, Andrea is a literal expert on this topic. She did her doctoral, uh, her dissertation on this topic, and we have a lot to learn from her. And so we are going to continue the conversation. We got lots of great questions that we've heard from the herd that we will Uh, prompt Andrea with. Andrew, did you want to give a brief recap of what we spoke about last week? (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, you definitely want to listen to part one before diving into part two. Last week, part one, we focused a lot on the actual infection itself, how it's transmitted, the types of tick species that transmit it, where they live, the fact that, you know, there are different ticks out there that spread different infections. Um, And we talked a little bit about diagnostics and symptoms. But this week, we're really going to dig into that, as well as um, a heavy focus on the myths and misconceptions. So this one is going to be a little bit more controversial than than like the basics that we discussed last week. Yeah, Andrew, I think we need to buckle up. Our inbox is about to... (laughs) feel some heat. Um, but but Andrea put together some incredible infographics that we put up on the pod social media pages, including a really nifty chart of the different types of ticks and tick-borne illnesses that a couple of folks, including some clinicians, uh, have reached out. They've asked, can they print this chart? It's really incredible. It summarizes everything so beautifully. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. So, okay, before we dig into the controversy, the controversial side of Lyme disease and some of the misconceptions around Lyme disease, we have to give a shout out. We just, we brought on a team of the most incredible interns (laughs) and they have been helping us put together content because guys, to be totally honest with you, this podcast and the associated social media pages have grown into something bigger than we had ever hoped for, but that also means that it takes more effort and time than, you know, unfortunately we're not able to clone ourselves and so we needed to to bring on some interns and we've delegated some work and they're doing such an incredible job I'm just I'm floored by their enthusiasm their excitement they and and also you know we've got interns our team crosses three continents Mm -hmm. and four countries I believe and they're they get along and they're I mean we just in just a few days, there's such a rapport and they have such a streamlined process. I'm I'm just, I'm blown away. I, and we're inspired by that. So inspired. Yeah. And it makes me so excited about the next generation of future scientists and public health science um, folks. You know, we've got a whole diverse array of different backgrounds and interests and they're so complimentary and I'm just, I'm obsessed with them. And we are definitely going to give them a shout out on our page. We're going to highlight each and every one of them. They each have really interesting stories and um, 
they're just incredible. And mm-hmm. speaking of which, you know, last week we spoke about Women Who Engineer, that that awesome uh, Instagram page, and how they share their STEM stories. And I think anyone who's contemplating a career in STEM, any young young women who are interested in pursuing a career in STEM should definitely check it out. Sorry. I was I know I was going to say, you know, they do they do they post internship opportunities, they post job postings, they post information about workshops and as we know, you know, women are underrepresented in STEM careers and so it's really important that, you know, pages like theirs and other organizations serve as a resource and as a voice for young women scientists. Mm-hmm. And if I can add as all you know as a scientist but also as a mother I thought it was really cool you know they highlight these stem stories for women who you know come from very different backgrounds and have very different livelihoods they they featured this software uh, engineer in Knoxville and it's to me I just I got such a, a kick out of the picture it really resonated with me because you have this this incredible woman scientist this software engineer and she's holding her two kiddos on her lap and just her expression of <laughs> how difficult it is to juggle everything it really resonated with me so guys check it out make sure you check out women who engineer at women who engineer on instagram whenever you get a chance all right andrea let's talk lime yes all right (laughs) Buckle Um, buckle up everybody so i'm going to elaborate on a couple of key details from last week because of course It was very dense. We got to most of the basics, but um, there are certain pieces that I want to kind of expand on before we dig into the controversy. So first of all, Lyme disease is a bacterial infection. It is so named because of the cluster of pediatric arthritis cases that were reported in Lyme, Connecticut in the 1970s and 1975. And at this point, the causative agent, so what actually caused these pediatric arthritis cases was not known, but an epidemiological investigation determined that these cases, so these are children that are developing this asymmetrical uh, knee swelling related arthritis, um, that these occurrences were coinciding with tick bites after playing in wooded areas in the spring and summer. And several of these children actually had reported seeing rashes on their skin. So seven years later, a scientist named Willie Bergdorfer identified the causative agent. And so the bacterium is named after him. It's Borrelia burgdorferi. We know that this bacteria, um, there's historical data that traces it back up to 60,000 years. And there are other Borrelia species out there, but they don't all cause Lyme disease. And so we discuss this on the social media page. It is a very, very large family of bacteria that include these, um, we call them spirochetes. They're spiral-shaped bacteria. They include other other genus and other species beyond just the Lyme disease-causing bacterium. Mm -hmm. Now, misinformation, um, mostly starting in the 1990s, but really accelerating since the dawn of social media, has led to a lot of social and political controversy around Lyme disease. And it's incredibly frustrating because it goes against all of the evidence-based data that we have, but we have these very vocal and outspoken advocates in these these um, conflicting realms that 
become the voices of scientifically unproven or misproven diagnoses, information, treatments, etc. Um, and this is everything from clinicians that promote unproven or misproven treatments, also organizations that seem legitimate but promote dangerous misinformation. There's even diagnostic labs that are involved in this as well. And of course, that all funnels into public consumption. So now there are things like documentaries and I have that in quotes because they're not actually documentaries they're not sharing credible information but there's books there's social media groups there's all sorts of things and so it's really important to dispel a lot of this and this is an ongoing battle right it's it's very similar to a lot of opposition to vaccination because it's not going to end simply with us saying this this one time it's it's got to be a concerted effort oh gosh and the misinformation is everywhere so I I don't know if I'm having like a midlife crisis or something but I downloaded TikTok (laughs) and I have to tell you the amount of videos that I'm seeing about I I know we're going to get into it but chronic Lyme I mean Mm -hmm. one of the the main things that you taught me last week was that you know this is a bacterial infection that is treatable by antibiotics just that that alone is something that I think that people don't understand Andrea so we got this question a lot uh and I I'm hoping that you're able to to put it to bed okay so people are asking is this man-made is Lyme disease man-made is that is there any truth to that there is not um there are a couple of books that emerged within the last several decades that tried to claim that this was a man-made biological warfare agent and that ticks were genetically engineered to carry the bacteria and and of course that's not true we have we have evidence from you know samples collected around the country from a over 60,000 years that demonstrate this bacteria has existed, you know, far, far before we had even that kind of technology. Um, On top of that, there's really no kind of advantage of creating a biological weapon that that is so relatively benign as as Lyme disease. Um, So Lyme disease is exclusively transmitted through the bite of an infected tick. And these are two tick species in the North America. It's Ixodes scapularis and Ixodes pacificus. This is the black-legged and the western black-legged tick. Um, You want to tune into last week's to hear more about the ticks themselves. But these ticks have to be infected with the bacteria. Um, And as we know, only about 10 to 20% of ticks of these species are infected with the bacteria itself and they have to be attached for a minimum of 24 hours to transmit the bacterium and the average for humans is actually really 36 to 48 hours Um, but we err on the side of caution you know to reduce the the transmission risk so no it is it has been around the the family of spirochete bacteria has been around for thousands and thousands of years as I mentioned there are other Borrelia species as well that don't cause Lyme disease but cause other illnesses again they have also been around for thousands and thousands of years and Andrea you just I mean you're talking about something you talked about this in detail last week I think it's important to drive home that 
just you know if you have it if you find a tick on you that doesn't automatically mean that a, that you'll have any sort of disease mm-hmm. or infection is you know especially not necessarily Lyme disease because as you said there are only two types of tick right that mm-hmm. that can cause Lyme disease and the other really interesting thing is that you said that the tick has to be attached to you for a what a minimum of 24 hours I think you just said right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely and, and so you really emphasized the pr- prevention Right. So if you, you know, do to do the tick checks after you come home from, you know, some sort of an outdoor adventure in an area where you know that there are lots of ticks. And if you remove the tick properly, you're probably going to be very effective at preventing any kind of potential illness. Exactly. Yep. Prevention, DEET or pick a ride in based repellents, permethrin, insecticide on your clothing and tick checks are your best offense. Okay, next question. So how long, let's say someone is bitten by one of these two ticks that do carry Lyme, how long does it take to progress to full-fledged Lyme? So I always love this question when when people kind of phrase it that way because it assumes that the initial infection with the the, the bullseye rash is not full-fledged Lyme, and that, and that really actually is Lyme disease. But let's kind of break it down a little bit more and spend some time on it. So once Borrelia Burgdorferi is deposited into the skin by the bite of that infected tick, it pretty much has one of two fates. The first and the most common is that it causes a localized infection. So that's called localized Lyme disease. And um, and typically those, those infections, the vast majority of infections, it's 80 to 90% of Borrelia infections are remain as localized infections. And most of them are even cleared by your immune system in the skin without even needing treatment. And so that's kind of your, your stereotypical Lyme disease. So localized Lyme disease presents 60 to 80% of the time with that bullseye rash called erythema migrans. Now the, the rash and we posted some images on the social media. The rash sometimes looks like a bullseye. Sometimes it's a little bit more uniform in color. Sometimes it can be hard to see if you have darker skin. Sometimes it can be hidden by hair. So, you know, we know that it presents 60 to 80% of the time, but a lot of people don't necessarily notice it. Um, So it's something that you want to be diligent about observing on your own body. Um, In addition to that erythema migrans or the EM rash, other generic symptoms occur, things like fever, fatigue, headache, muscle and joint aching, and sometimes lymphadenopathy, which is swollen lymph nodes. So typically those symptoms are a result of the immune response, recognizing that foreign invader, the bacteria that's in the skin, and you have all of these immune cells being recruited to that tick bite, and that's why that rash develops actually. Now, that, again, is the vast majority of of infections. There are some cases where Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacterium, can actually spread to other parts of the body, and this is called a disseminated infection, and disseminated simply just means spreading. And in this case, there are typically three areas of the body that the bacteria will spread to. Uh, The joints, most commonly the large joints like the knees, the nervous system, so central nervous system, and we'll talk a little bit more in just a minute, and then occasionally, very rarely, um, the heart. So the disseminated infection occurs in about 10 to 20% of cases, and this is, of course, without treatment. Now, Mm. most of these disseminated infections will even self-resolve, meaning your immune system would be able to clear it even without treatment. Now, the reason that this happens in some cases, in rare cases and not 
in most cases is because Borrelia burgdorferi is a complex bacterium. So there are many different strains of Borrelia. Um, and these strains are classified based on differences in their genetic material. So when we think about, we're thinking about COVID-19 a lot these days because we're talking about variants and things like that. So variants of a virus are cha- small changes in a virus. When we're talking about strains of a bacteria, these are even more kind of complex changes because a bacteria is much more complex in structure and in nature. So most of these strains of bacteria physically don't have the capability to move from the tick bite to other sites of the body. And that's why they're restricted or they're localized to the skin. Only a few strains of the bacteria can actually physically move from the site of the tick bite and disseminate into the body, okay? Mm -hmm. So when we have disseminated Lyme disease in these infrequent cases, 10 to 20% of cases, again, they're going to um, migrate to the joints, to potentially the heart. This is pretty rare. And then also the central nervous system. Now, once they're in those sites, they can cause additional inflammation like they would at the tick bite site, and they can cause some tissue damage. So in the case of the Lyme arthritis or the joint manifestation of disseminated Lyme disease, this occurs in about 20% of cases. Um, And this is typically arthritis, meaning inflammation of the joints, and it's typically asymmetrical, and it typically involves visible swelling of the joints. So we posted, again, some images on social media. Um, Neurological complications can occur in about 10% of cases, and these are often facial numbness or weakness or droop of the face. Some people call it Bell's palsy, but it's not truly Bell's palsy, but it's similar. Some people report peripheral nerve pain or tingling, and sometimes we have more centralized symptoms like stiff neck, fever, headache, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the last would be your cardiac dissemination, so that's to the heart area. And this occurs very rarely. This is only about 1% of cases. And this leads to things like irregular heartbeat or inflammation of the heart tissue called carditis. Hmm. So, Andrew, you're talking about some things that, you know, they do sound pretty scary, hearing Mm -hmm. that you could have neurological complications, potentially cardiac I know that you, you, and we'll talk more about treatment in a sec, but you know, we, you've mentioned that it's treatable with antibiotic. Do those things eventually resolve after treatment? Exactly. Exactly. So, (laughs) you know, even with these disseminated infection symptoms, like the neurologic or the arthritic, the antibiotic treatments are very effective. And so, you know, let's, let's quickly jump ahead and and just talk about the treatment first. Um, And we can always kind of move back to some of the other questions. So treatment is doxycycline or amoxicillin. And so for localized infection, localized Lyme disease, where it's essentially staying at the site of the tick bite, it's doxycycline for 10 to 14 days or amoxicillin for 14 days. For disseminated Lyme disease that presents neurologically or or cardiac involvement, they do doxycycline for 14 to 20 days. So it's a little bit longer. For the disseminated Lyme disease that presents as arthritis, they do 28 days of doxycycline. And we'll talk a lot more about kind of treatments or alternatives 
alternative treatments, but just suffice it to say, there's no data, there's no evidence that longer-term antibiotics um, are beneficial, that they help with anything beyond that. Once you take doxycycline for up to 28 days, you're killing all the bacteria that are present in the body. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so we got this other question quite a bit. You know, you you spoke about the red rings and rash that Mm -hmm. typically accompany. I don't know if it's, well, this is my question. Does it always, does Lyme disease always present with those red rings and that rash? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33 percent with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market it's a great question and you know it, it presents in about 60 to 80% of patients. And that rash is caused by our immune cells recognizing the bacteria that's just been deposited into the skin. So it's, it's a sign of inflammation. It's a sign of production of chemicals by our immune cells. And that typically occurs within days to weeks of the tick bite. So yes, it occurs in 60 to 80% of patients, but a lot of people are maybe not quite as observant about it. And again, it's not always this very obvious bullseye shape. It can be more um, irregularly shaped. It can be more uniform in color. Again, if you have darker skin, it might not be as obvious. Um, If the tick bit you say behind your ear, it might be under your scalp. And so you might not see it with your hairline. So again, that's why you always want to be proactive about checking for ticks so you can find them quickly and eliminate the risk of getting infected. Now, if someone has the erythema migrans rash, that is your one stop for clinical diagnosis. They will start you on that course of antibiotics and you'll be done with it. If someone doesn't have a rash, but they suspect Lyme disease, there is a diagnostic test for Lyme. Well, you read my mind. I was going to ask you, (laughs) how does one diagnose Lyme disease? It's a great question. So there is a two-tiered test for Lyme disease. And this is actually a little bit different from other bacterial infections where we do like a throat swab or something like that. And the reason that is is because the bacteria is not present in copious amounts in our body. So the testing is actually using antibody testing, which is an immune response-based test. So the issue with that is that As we know with COVID-19, the serology testing that you've all heard about, antibody testing, that persists well after your infection is over with. And so sometimes these tests yield false positive results, which means that people are being overdiagnosed or diagnosed with a longer term infection, even if they've already been treated. Because once you've been treated, you'll still have antibodies present, but you don't have any bacteria in your body anymore. And the reason that we can't do an active bacterial infection is again, these bacteria, they're deposited into the skin by the bite of an infected tick. They don't exist in heavy levels in our body. Um, You know, they're actually quite difficult to culture in the lab. And so there actually is some work to develop more more tests for accurate or um, 
acute infection. But typically the testing will be implemented once a clinician kind of determines if the person is at risk. So they look at the signs and the symptoms. So we talk about the things like the rash or the arthritis or the neurological symptoms. They also look at the other more generic symptoms. But again, it's important to keep in mind that these generic symptoms are present in a lot of other things. So then they also have to look at the likelihood that a person wasn't exposed to an infected black-legged tick. So as you remember, these ticks don't live everywhere. They're not present in, say, South America. They're not present in Australia. They're not present in most of Asia and Europe and other parts of North America. So, you know, there are places that Lyme disease is diagnosed around the world that it doesn't exist in. Um, And we're going to get into that soon. And then they also want to do a differential and eliminate the risk or potential, you know, symptoms related to a, a different infection or a different disease. And then they do the serology. So the serology test is looking for immune response to the bacteria. So they're looking at different types of antibodies, IgG and IgM. So IgM is produced early in infection and IgG is produced later in infection. And there's two different tests that are implemented and that helps eliminate the rate of false positives. Um, And because as I said, you could have recovered from an infection or your immune system could have cleared an infection even without treatment, but you would still have antibodies present because it's an indication that your immune system responded to that infection. And so one of the challenges with this is that this means that Lyme disease is often overdiagnosed because you're looking at this immune response. So it's looking for potential past infections, but it can't tell you how recently that infection was. And these tests require a blood sample. And there are certain FDA-approved tests that are used, but there are labs that offer fake tests for Lyme, and they use methods or they use tests that almost always return positive results. Call them out, Andrea. And this is a big problem because this is why so many people often believe that they have Lyme disease when they don't actually have Lyme disease. And one of the biggest perpetrators is a lab called X, And they were actually brought up on an investigation by Medicare in the state of California for basically reporting extremely high rates of positive tests. There is an entire list of laboratories that do non-standard laboratory tests. And so X is on there. There's another one called Global Lyme Diagnostics. There's one called Milford Molecular Diagnostics. Galaxy Diagnostics. There's a huge list of them, um, but ultimately they're involved in uh, promoting this misinformation. And what they do is they conduct tests that are not FDA authorized. They conduct tests using things even like urine samples, which the bacteria is not present in urine samples and your antibodies are not present in urine samples. And then they tell people or tell physicians or clinicians that these people are positive for Lyme disease with with no, um, no kind of epidemiological evidence that they were near a tick, that they were bitten by a tick, that they have any of the risk factors. And of course, then and then people start um, some of these unproven or misproven treatments for it. And Andrea, we'll put a we'll put a link. Um, Quackwatch has a yes. list, right, of laboratories yes. doing non-standard laboratory tests. So if you're curious, we'll put that up there. So yeah, and there was a, a New York Times article that kind of you know investigated some of this as well. We'll put that up on the site too. 
so I, I know we're we're working toward this and this the big kahuna of course or the, the you know of um controversy or misinformation around Lyme is around chronic Lyme right but does this have anything to do with chronic Lyme this it it yeah. does a little bit because we've got this kind of cohort of physicians and and actually non-physician practitioners that that promote this this diagnosis and they actually often selectively use these labs that are on this list that use unproven diagnostic tests and and they actually all personally profit off of this but there actually was an investigation on this at this particular one that I mentioned um, specifically IgeneX um, and they had to pay fines for this but yes it's very important to keep in mind if you're getting a test what is the test is it FDA authorized are the clinician you're going to shopping for a specific lab to send and the test too. Those are all things that you want to be suspicious of. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's the big question and, and you've touched on this, but let's, you know, let's talk about it head on. So people have asked, you know, they've heard that there's no cure for Lyme disease. Is there a cure? Is there a treatment? What is the treatment? You, can you talk to us about that? Yep. So again, we'll reiterate. So if you have localized Lyme disease, meaning the bacteria stayed in the skin and you have no other, you know, joint or neurological or cardiac symptoms, it's doxycycline for 10 to 14 days, amoxicillin or amoxicillin for 14 days. If you have evidence of disseminated Lyme disease, then you'll be treated with doxycycline or amoxicillin for a longer period of time, typically 14 to 28 days. There's no evidence that longer-term antibiotics are beneficial. Once you kill the bacteria, the bacteria are gone. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about rare instances where the tissue damage or the inflammation persists, but there are no data that the bacteria remain dormant. There are no data that the bacteria create persisters or cysts or all of these other phrases that I've heard used with Lyme. Um, These bacteria do not do that. Okay, so next question. Are some people immune? immune to Lyme disease? It's a really good question. So as I mentioned, there are many, many strains of the bacteria and the bacteria are very different strain by strain. And that's why some strains physically can't move from the side of the tick bite to other place in the body. And only a few strains can actually do that. But there actually is some evidence that once you've been infected with one strain of the bacteria, you actually mount strain specific immunity for at least six years. But what that means is you may still test positive on an antibody test for Borrelia. Now you can be infected with other strains of the bacteria. So as I mentioned, there are many of them, but not the same strain, um, at least for that six year period. But again, it's a bacteria. They're very, very different strain by strain. So even if you've had Lyme disease once um, and you've treated it and you've cured it and all that, uh, you still want to be very proactive uh, with tick checks and prevention. All right. So Andrea, there's been some conspiracy theories swirling. You know, at one point there was a vaccine. I I think Mm -hmm. you you touched on that last week for Lyme disease. Can you tell us why did the vaccine go off the market? You know, is there any talk of bringing it back? 
back? And why was there one for dogs but not humans? I mean, there are so many questions about this. So, you know, when we're talking about curing a bacterial illness, of course, people have questions about vaccines. And and there are vaccines for bacterial infections. You know, vaccines are not just for viral infections. So I think that's important to note because we did get a couple of questions of, is it possible to have a vaccine for a bacterium? We do have vaccines for bacterial infections. Now, there was one. So the Limerix vaccine was approved by the FDA in 1998. And it was a three-dose regimen, and it actually was 78% effective at reducing infections with Borrelia burgdorferi, which is great. 78% effectiveness is is a really effective vaccine. And that was particularly useful for high-risk areas, right? So we talked about last week how 95% of Lyme disease cases come from just 15 states clustered in the Northeast and the Midwest. And I posted a map of kind of where those areas were on our social media page. So the Lyme disease was recommended or considered for use in individuals that were between 15 years old and 70 years old that lived or worked in areas with high rates of Lyme disease. So those would be those 15 states that we just discussed. People with very little exposure to areas with lots of tick infestations or high prevalence were not necessarily recommended to receive the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's important to note that uh, this vaccine was effective. It, you know, it wasn't mandated, which is a challenge at getting uptake um, as we now are seeing with COVID-19 vaccines. Um, but this time that it was released, 1998, was the same year as Andrew Wakefield and his false claims about the link between the MMR vaccine and autism. And so this era of science was tainted with a lot of anti-vaccine rhetoric and political pressure and public outcry. And so the vaccine was actually pulled off the market four years later in 2002. Now, there were 59 reports of arthritis, which again is joint inflammation, and over one and a half million doses of the vaccine. So if you do the math, you can notice that that is a very, very rare adverse event. Just like any rare adverse event in vaccines, um, correlation does not equal causation, but because of the timing and the you know, coincidental era with with Andrew Wakefield and the rise of the anti-vaccine movement, it really let, that was the downfall of this vaccine, ultimately. There are new vaccines in development now, though, which is really exciting. There's actually a a pre-exposure treatment vaccine, which uses a monoclonal antibody therapy, and there's actually a preventative vaccine that's being co-developed by Pfizer and Valneva um, that are in early phase clinical trials. All right. Well, I'm I'm buckled in and I think it's time <laughs> it I think is. it's time to talk about chronic Lyme disease, which is one of the most controversial and common topics related to Lyme. Tell us, Andrea, talk to us about this. All right. So first it's important to recognize that 30% of people around the world live with chronic or nonspecific pain, fatigue, lethargy, joint pain, muscle pain, back pain, etc. So unfortunately, chronic Lyme disease has become somewhat of a scapegoat. It is a nonspecific diagnosis without a consistent definition that has been given to patients with various nonspecific symptoms. And because there is not a diagnostic available to rule in or rule out active infection with Borrelia burgdorferi, this has led to the emergence of a group of advocates 
political figures, celebrities, and even clinicians that promote this this um, diagnosis. Now, it is important to note that after effective treatment with antibiotics, there is a small proportion of people that were actually diagnosed with Lyme disease that that truly had Lyme disease that continue to report some fatigue and some muscle pain um, that can continue for a few months after the infection is resolved. So this is known as post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Um, And again, this is kind of analogous to what we're calling, um, you know, long COVID, which is officially called PASC or post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And this is this kind of feeling crappy for a few months after infection. But this kind of generic, nonspecific fatigue and lethargy and muscle pain has now kind of taken on the um, persona of a chronic infection. And that's where chronic Lyme disease was born out of. And because of this, people are diagnosed with this chronic Lyme disease and are given or offered treatments that have no medical data behind them and and many are actually dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to keep in mind is that these generic symptoms often overlap with other legitimate medical issues, things like osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, degenerative disc diseases of the spine, other neurological diseases like multiple sclerosis or other demyelinating diseases, um, dementia, other neuropathies, or even depression. So it's really unfortunate that people are being diagnosed as having a chronic Lyme infection, and we're overlooking very credible and legitimate medical issues. There's no epidemiological data that suggests that these other medical issues correlate or cluster with Lyme disease. There's no association between multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, or Lyme disease. Um, And there's no evidence that Lyme infection converts someone to developing something like multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or things like that. Hmm. Okay. So, oops, sorry. Were you going to finish your thought? Yes. So what I was going to say is... You know, there's sometimes symptom overlap between symptoms of disseminated Lyme disease and other medical issues, but there are ways to differentiate these using differential diagnostics and and epidemiological data, right? Are you in an area that Lyme is prevalent? Were you recently bitten by a tick? Do you have these symptoms? Were you in the woods? All of these sorts of things. Now, we're not saying that a small proportion of people that had Lyme disease at one one point, you know, aren't feeling crappy, right? You know, they, 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 there is, you know, some of this kind of post-treatment syndrome that can persist, but this is a rare proportion. And the vast number of people that claim to have chronic Lyme disease is well over even the proportion of people that are, that actually are estimated to have, you know, acute Lyme infection. And the problem that happens is that, um, you know, communities of patients and patient advocates have kind of gotten together and they claim that their symptoms are the result of a persistent Lyme infection that has gone undiagnosed. And this is without any evidence of a previous infection. There is no kind of indication that they were ever in an area where it was, that they were ever, you know, infected, they were ever bitten, they were ever exposed. But these medically unexplained symptoms and media coverage has led to the rise of adoption of this Um, identity of chronic Lyme disease. So this is really important because, 
you're pointing out that because people are so quick to use Lyme as a scapegoat, they may actually be overlooking some other potentially serious medical issues. Exactly. And, and you know, I try not to use anecdotes here, but there are several instances and cases of people who went for years thinking they had chronic Lyme disease because some clinician diagnosed them with it. And it turns out they had multiple sclerosis and they could have been getting treatment for that. But they went years without treating it and and the disease, the actual disease they had progressed, right? And so it's really important. We're not discounting the experience or the symptoms or the, the pain a person is feeling, but there are no data that tie an ongoing Lyme infection with these, you know, uh, symptoms and prolonged treatments are not recommended for this. Mm-hmm. So, Andrea, we got this question dozens of times. People <laughs> have heard that it never leaves your body and it somehow lives dormant for either for several years or forever. Can you comment on that? So it is completely curable and treatable. As I mentioned, it is a bacterial infection. The antibiotics we use, doxycycline and amoxicillin, are extremely effective at killing this particular bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, These bacteria also do not have the capability to form things like spores or cysts or persisters or things like that. And it's also not fatal. (laughs) That's important to keep in mind as well. As I mentioned, these persistent symptoms in those rare instances is not due to bacteria that are still in your body. It is due to sequelae, which is tissue damage as a consequence of a previous infection. And that is damage that occurred before the infection was cleared. So someone that has arthritic symptoms that persist for a few months after their antibiotic course has finished, it's not because there's bacteria still in their joint. It's because the inflammation that was caused from both the bacterial infection and the immune response led to some persistent inflammation, which is what arthritis is. So can there be biological changes in someone's body from years of treatment? Yes. And this is such an important topic because, as I mentioned, these people that promote the fallacy of chronic Lyme disease or chronic infection often promote medically unproven or disproven treatments that are long-term. And so these long-term, especially intravenous, antibiotic, and other holistic remedies have been associated with dangerous complications. And that includes things like other infections. It can include things like major gastrointestinal um, defects because you're, when you take long-term antibiotics, you're killing other bacteria. And in our bodies, we have this whole microbiome of healthy bacteria that we need in order to function normally. So if you're taking antibiotics for years, you're going to wipe out those healthy bacteria and it's going to cause a lot of detrimental consequences. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a 2015 study that noted a 50% increase in long-term antibiotic therapies being prescribed for so-called chronic Lyme disease when you compare 2004 to 2006 versus 2010 to 2012. And that rate is only rising. And the people... 
scary. Sorry, it's go on. It's very scary. <sighs> and the doctors that prescribe or provide these treatments are not following the recommended treatments and the evidence-based guidelines. And they diagnose Lyme disease even if those serology tests, which is looking at the immune response to the infection, are negative, meaning you have no evidence that you were ever at any point in the past, you know, infected with Lyme Borrelia. So Andrea, I feel like this is something we'll talk about on a future episode. Obviously, we're, you know, we think antibiotics are fantastic, but they should only be given when needed, right? Because antibiotics do cause changes in our body and and you shouldn't take them if you, if you know, if there's no need to actually take them. So that's actually really terrible to hear uh, that some folks are taking them so long term. It's, it's so important, and it's important to note that, you know, clinicians, other clinicians, health departments, and patients have contacted CDC and other organizations with reports of serious bacterial infections that result from ongoing and long-term treatments of people who had received this chronic Lyme disease diagnosis. And these, oh there's several links that we're going to add to the website, but things that lead to septic shock, C. diff infections or colitis, mm-hmm. which is chronic inflammation inflammation of the GI tract, um, osteodiscitis, abscesses, and even death. Um, oh there have gosh. been several instances of people dying from medically unproven treatments for Lyme disease. And more than that, there have been numerous randomized controlled trials looking at the comparison of short-term antibiotics, which is the the gold standard versus these long-term treatments. And there's no evidence that not only do they help reduce bacterial load because a short-term does kill the bacteria, but there's also no evidence that they improve quality of life. And many of these individuals were actually misdiagnosed as having chronic Lyme when they had other medical issues as we discussed. So depression, multiple sclerosis. So it's important to note that chronic Lyme is not a medically approved diagnosis. Hmm. Okay, so... What are, there are some uh, alternative Lyme treatments that are circulating. I've seen things about, you know, light therapies, cold therapies, heavy dosing of uh, vitamins and herbs. Can you talk to us about some of those alternative treatments? Yes. So, you know, these kind of fall into when people, you know, they feel like they're not being heard or they're frustrated because they feel crummy and they're convinced because of social media or something that it's chronic Lyme. And so, they seek help from alternative care providers and they look at these other sorts of treatments that again, there's no medical evidence that these, these help. And so some examples, and there's kind of four main categories. There's what we call oxygen therapies. There's energy therapies. There's metal or chelation therapies. Sorry, there's five nutritional therapies and then biological or pharmacologic therapies. So your oxygen therapies are going to be things like, you know, hydrogen peroxide or ozone treatment or energy therapies are going to be things like cold lasers or saunas or magnets, you know, metal or chelation therapies. They talk about things like chelating the heavy metals in your body or, or, or removal of dental amalgam or treating you with colloidal silver. I can say growing up in Connecticut, colloidal silver treatment was a big one amongst naturopaths. You get into nutritional supplements that again, you know, 
most most might be benign, right? You know, garlic or cilantro or vitamin C, you know, but again, you're claiming that this is treating some medical issue that there, again, there's no evidence to treat with. And there's also some weird herbs that, again, there's no data on efficacy or safety um, that people will often take. And then I think the most concerning, although the other ones are certainly concerning, are these biological or pharmacologic treatments. So things like urine therapy, which is urine ingestion, or giving no. forced enemas to people. A lot of a lot of these clinicians are prescribing unproven hormonal therapies, which we know hormones have systemic effects on the body. Um, and, and other things like intravenous Ig therapy or apheresis, which is literally like removing your blood cells and reinfusing them in your body. So again, there is a lot of potentially dangerous treatments that people are promoting. And on top of that, there's no biological plausibility as to when, why any of these would be effective to begin with to treat Borrelia burgdorferi. Oh my God, Andrea, some of those things you described, they sound like they're out of a medieval medical it's books, you know. very, very concerning. Did you say drinking urine? I sure did. That is actually a commonly used therapy for a wide gamut of various ailments that is prescribed by your homeopathy or your naturopathy, you know, folks out there. And it's, it's potentially dangerous and also just truly disgusting. So as you said, there's no biological plausibility as to any of the, you know, as to why any of these uh, quote unquote treatments would be effective. Um, and some of them can be downright dangerous. And, and, you know, I know we've spoken about this. It's, you know, the CDC has put out information that antibiotics are the only known effective treatment for Lyme disease, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, but, but they also note that, you know, you do a Google search and you're going to find all of these websites that are promoting untested or misproven remedies claiming to cure Lyme disease or cure chronic Lyme disease. So the CDC has put out statements, the um, Infectious Disease Society of America, which is also a reputable organization, have put out statements. Other credible organizations, such as the American College of Rheumatology, which are experts in arthritis and rheumatic illnesses, and the American Academy of Neurology have also come out. And they are the ones that come up with diagnostic and treatment guidelines for Lyme disease. But there's a lot of psychology associated with this, right? These alternative care providers, um, they often prey on people that are skeptics about conventional medicine, or they have, you know, differential opinions about taking control over their health. And they, they create phrasing or messaging that make patients susceptible to these claims about alternative therapies. And these include things like, hope or, you know, um, distaste for conventional authorities and things like that. And so they promote and they prey on people and their, their wish to feel better by diagnosing them with an illness that they don't have any evidence they have. Oh my gosh. And this this really brings us, Mm -hmm. it really is. And it's, and it's very frustrating kind of seeing it unfold in real life and knowing the science behind it. And this really brings us to what we call the Lyme literate doctors or the Lyme literate physicians, which are a dangerous fringe group of clinical practitioners. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we kind of touched on this in the beginning where we talked about how certain physicians will send tests to specific labs that kind of falsify data or, you know, always return a positive test result. And so these are these so-called Lyme literate physicians are physicians that ignore accredited laboratory testing or FDA approved testing. And they prefer to make a clinical diagnosis of Lyme disease um, based on some very generic clinical findings, or they utilize these specialty labs, which have invented their own criteria for overdiagnosing Lyme disease. And as you would expect, there is many conflicts of interest, most of them financial. Many of these labs have funded some of these groups and they personally fund these physicians. Um, and these tests have very, very high rates of reporting positive results and they diagnose Lyme disease with no criteria. And of course, they ignore those other medical conditions, right? Rheumatoid arthritis, possibly cancers, depression, etc. And and it's important to note that these people, many of them are technically physicians, an MD or a DO, but they're not infectious disease specialists. They transfer or transition into this niche role of calling themselves Lyme literate um, without any true infectious disease residency or specialty or training. And, and it's important to understand that many of these around the world have actually been involved with the law and have pleaded guilty to medical malpractice and medical fraud due to the actions that they undertake in this chronic Lyme fallacy. I love that so many people are so quick to point out or be skeptical of pharmaceutical companies and potential, you know, financial interest in promoting antibiotics or whatever other treatments without understanding that so many of these fringe groups that you're mentioning right now, they are also financially motivated. I don't know why people overlook that. It's a great know? point. And, you know, the the antibiotic treatment is is usually covered by insurance. And even exactly. if it's not, it costs $50. Right. And the stuff that we're going to get into, these are thousands and thousands of dollars of treatment. And most of it is going directly into the pocket of the person that's prescribing it. So we're going to put a link up of a list of some of these physicians and clinicians. But I want to talk about this one because, because um, I have people I know who actually went to this person. And his name is Joseph Jemsek. So in, eight, in April 2006, he was actually charged by the North Carolina Medical Board with unprofessional conduct that involved inappropriately diagnosing 10 patients with Lyme disease and prescribing unfounded treatment. And he was, he was at the Gemsic Clinic, which was in Hunterville, North Carolina, and it was the, private, the largest private HIV clinic in the Carolinas. So he prescribed and diagnosed these patients 
with no evidence, no historical, no physical, no serological, no laboratory evidence to support his diagnosis. He placed them with indwelling catheters, which obviously increases risks of infections. He prescribed intravenous antibiotics for months. They were not informed that his diagnosis was not based on anything medical to begin with. And they were not informed that these long-term treatments were departure from the actual standard of treatment. So what happened was he was suspended. His medical license was suspended. And um, instead of kind of trying to regroup after that, he actually fled the state and he moved to D.C. after his disciplinary action where he got a new medical license to practice in D.C. in 2009. And he is still practicing Lyme medicine there. He has a clinic there and he has an active website and he's actively recruiting patients. But it's important to note that in 2005, before this case came through, he collected $6 million dollars from Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. And he collected this after he declared his earlier medical practice bankrupt. His new practice is cash only. So he doesn't Mm. take insurance and he personally profits. Mm -hmm. This is the guy who has a a brand new building with a waterfall and a grand piano, right? Mm -hmm. Real. Exactly. 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 Wowzer. Okay. So, so there's many examples of this. There's another example, um, a, a physician in New Jersey named Vitaldis Shah. He had his license suspended in 1993 for misdiagnosing Lyme disease and taking kickbacks from companies that sold the intravenous apparatus for home use. So basically he's telling people they need to take antibiotics intravenously at home for months and months and months. Um, and this suspension was for five years and, and he was only allowed limited privileges, um, Um, A few years later, he was kind of newly granted um, his license, but he could only practice very specific kinds of medicine. He was never allowed again to involve himself with Lyme disease or in IV therapy um, in any capacity. So, okay, sorry. I think you were about to say something. Um, I have have a a question for you, but I, I... I don't want to take you away if you were going to nope. talk about another no, topic. No, but no. Um, so, I mean, you're talking about a, a lot of really scary things. And it sounds like people will, you know, uh, unknowingly fall prey to so much of this misinformation. How do we spot these red flags? How, you know, how do people know that it's, it's anti-science? And you know, it's so hard, right? And we're going to post a couple of, of links. FDA actually has a really great source on how to how to kind of vet information on online because as you know anybody can share anything online and a lot of these sites look very credible right so you know the this is going to be more specifically about Lyme but the FDA site is really for all sorts of things so again we talked about this in the supplement episode making very outlandish claims about things with no data and stuff like that but the first thing is that there are advocacy or organizations that exist that seem like they're credible um, and they promote this Lyme advocacy or this mentality of chronic Lyme. And so one of the biggest ones is ILADS or International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. And this society emerged in the 1990s just kind of with the evolution of social media and the internet and Andrew Wakefield. And it was supported by a lot of Lyme advocacy groups and they publish unfiltered and uncredible information online, but their website looks very, very official. They even host a research conference that, funny enough, I was invited to attend when I was 
doing Lyme Borreliosis research, but but these websites attract people who have these medically unexplained symptoms, right? And they and they promote this fallacy that, oh, well, it's got to be Lyme disease. It's got to be this chronic Lyme that you've never been treated for. And these websites also have physician referrals. So you can go and you can go to find a physician. You can find a Lyme literate physician and, and you pay a fee and you find them and then the, the physician gets a kickback. And um, there was a big expose about this in 2019 in New York Magazine. And these physicians, they charge exorbitant fees. They they have frequent follow-ups. They prescribe all of these out-of-pocket treatments that we already discussed. Um, and they're making millions and millions of dollars. Another example is something called the Global Lyme Alliance, or the uh, another one is the ILADEF, which is the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Educational Foundation. And a big one is the IS. EAI, which is the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. And this organization promotes unfounded co-illnesses like Lyme occurring with toxic mold or systemic candida infections. So again, they look legitimate to the general public, but when you start digging around, they just, they promote all of this medically disproven information. The next thing would be Promoting chronic Lyme where Lyme infection itself is rare. And this is true globally. As I mentioned, 95% of Lyme in the U.S. is in 15 states. And it doesn't exist in many parts of the world. But you're going to find chronic Lyme advocacy groups in places like Australia where Lyme doesn't even exist. Other things would be unscientific practitioners. So using that term like Lyme literate. Being affiliated with those organizations we talked about. Using terms as integrative, functional, alternative, complementary. Ayurvedic, um, homeopathic, naturopathic, all of these should be red flags. Many of these people that are practicing Lyme advocacy or Lyme treatment have personal stories that led them to this route and they profit directly because they're, they're promoting or prescribing treatments not covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next thing would be (laughs) diagnostic red flags. So we talked about those labs that fake data. So those would be labs that are using unproven testing, especially those sold over the counter. And actually, when I was at CVS to get my COVID vaccine a couple weeks ago, I saw an over-the-counter urinalysis Lyme disease test at CVS. No way. And I took a picture of myself holding it. But um, So we'll share it. So, So that is not a legitimate test, right? The FDA has very specific tests. These are blood based tests so you cannot do a urine based test these are fake you using those labs that we discussed that promote these non-standardized tests um lab shopping so if you go somewhere that's doing a test and is like oh well, we're gonna go and and we're only gonna use this lab and we have to send it across the country or we have to send it to another country or things like that those are big red flags um doctor shopping so again traveling really far for a specialist in lyme disease those are red flags being diagnosed with implausible co-infection so meaning oh well you have lyme disease and you also also have chronic babesia you also have bartonella you also have mycoplasma you also have mold toxicity you also have heavy metal poisoning there are so many of these you're not going to be co-infected with things that are not transmitted together and you're not going to be infected with 16 different things at once this is mm-hmm. not a phenomenon mm-hmm. the treatment red flags we discussed a lot already but again enormous amounts of prescriptions beyond the standard of care things that are over the counter things that are expensive 
effective, non-FDA approved treatments, treatment protocols that are named after people. <laughs> so like this is the whatever protocol. Those are not real. Um, treatments that last longer than two months. Um, installation of PICC lines or IV at home. Those are red flags. And I think the last thing that's really important is that this phenomenon of the kind of social impact or the social psychological impact of this has created this identity of chronic Lyme disease across many social channels. So once people start to integrate this into their identity, it becomes almost of a psychological um, issue as well. So people calling themselves a Lyme warrior or a chronic illness warrior, or, um, you know, someone who suffers from multiple dubious diagnoses, like I have chronic this and chronic this and chronic this and chronic this. There are medical issues that are chronic for sure. But when you start to kind of say that you are plagued with all of these chronic illnesses, um, this is often being used as a scapegoat for a legitimate medical issue. People that have hostility towards evidence-based medicine, so these are obviously not going to be unique to just Lyme, um, but people that explicitly seek naturopaths or explicitly seek homeopaths are going to fall prey to this more often. People who talk about um, Lyme forming biofilms or persisters or cysts, these don't happen with these bacteria. Um, and then, of course, joining these organizations that we talked about and becoming these very outspoken advocates or, or um, you know, in some cases, people start to sell these treatments themselves. Um, hmm. Those are, again, red flags. So it's this very complex, you know, physiological, psychological, you know, challenge to kind of accurately be able to vet what is truly out there. Well, you highlighted some really incredible red flags for folks. And, and as you said, we're going to post some links uh, that might be helpful to evaluate health information on the internet and, you know, to, to spot some red flags um, around Lyme disease. So we'll put that up on our website for sure. Andrea, I think I speak for everyone when I say thank you so much for sharing your, no, honestly, your, your expertise and your knowledge. Um, this is a very controversial topic and we need an infusion of actual science and data. And that's what you've done for us here. Um, since this is your baby, is there anything else you want to highlight before you take us home? I think the last thing I really want to say is, you know, Lyme disease is a real infection. You know, nobody discounts that. We have a very, very good understanding of the infection process, the pathology of illness and how to treat it. And in fact, there is a treatment. We're not discounting the fact that some people may not feel 100% better after treatment, particularly if they were one of the 10 to 20% that had disseminated Lyme disease. But again, there's no evidence that there's a chronic infection. And we want to emphasize that you may be overlooking another very legitimate medical issue. Um, you know, so... We hope that although controversial, this this gives you a bit more an insight into how this controversy has cropped up and how you can be better positioned to deal with it if someone you love or yourself or, you know, someone you know has fallen prey to this. Well, thank you, Andrea. That's a really important point to make. Um, and now I think you're going to take us home and tell folks what to expect next week. Yes. So we know these were a couple of heavy episodes and pretty dense, um, but thank you for joining us. And we hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As we mentioned, we put show notes and links up for every episode and there will be a lot 
spot for the Lyme disease series. So check out our website at www.unbiasciPod.com. We also have uh, links there to get some merch to rep the pod or leave us a donation. Next week, we are going to shift gears back again to COVID-19. We're going to discuss the new case trends, the variants, the emergence and prevalence of variants around the country, vaccine progress and development, and any other up-to-date relevant updates. We will, of course, continue to do that on our social media accounts as well. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a sci-